I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 98 of Talking Golf History, and an episode that we have titled The Radioactive Golfer. The story we are about to share today is one of the saddest golf stories I know of. A champion golfer who was struck down by the medicine he took to heal him. Our guest today is David Moore, the archivist at Oakmont Country Club and the golf historian at Allegheny Country Club. Today, David and I discuss the tragic story of the U.S. Open champion who was prescribed Radithor, a medicine that included the radioactive isotope radium. Before we jump into my interview with David Moore about the tragic story of Eben Byers, I wanted to mention historic golf holes. I have joined a group that will be designing and building some of golf's most historic golf holes and building them out of synthetic grass. We are already in discussions with private homeowners, golf course owners, and businesses about building world-famous golf holes that require no mowing, no use of chemicals, and provide near-carefree enjoyment of the game of golf on holes that have helped shape our game. If you're interested, shoot me an email at thesocietyofgolfhistorians.com. And now, a story of triumph and tragedy, the radioactive golfer. Dave, welcome to Talking Golf History. Hey, Connor. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Dave. I've got a question for you, and you can say no comment if you need to. Uh, Are you, in fact, recording this from the archives room at Oakmont? Uh, I am, (laughs) uh, uh, I figured it was one of the more productive things I can get done on a cold January afternoon. Slow day at the club. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, is anybody golfing out there today? Do we know? I I didn't see anybody, but there is a little bit of snow on the ground. So I, I don't know if there's a dusting. So there might be a couple guys out there this afternoon if it's, if it melts, but I there mean, was guys I, out there last Monday. It's crazy. I mean, they yeah. just they will play year round unless yep. they can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they they're out there pretty much. If it's above freezing and there's no snow and there's no rain, somebody <laughs> will go out. <laughs> just God bless them. God yeah. bless them. That's why it's Oakmont. I you know I was invited to. I, I've told the story. Maybe it was on another podcast, but um, I was invited to play the Lido, the the new Lido up in Wisconsin, and it was. Um, one of the last days it was open and got an invitation, could have made the trip. And I just asked them like, what, you know, what's the temperature going to be like? And they were like, Oh, you know, like low forties, no big deal. And I was like, <laughs> listen, if I can't feel my hands, it's not golf. Yeah. <laughs> I live in Florida. So I yeah. got a little picky. Can't wait to see it next year though. Uh, before we start on the story of uh, Mr. Eben Byers, um, perhaps you might share us a little bit with your history. How did you get into golf history? how did you get into history? Um, I've always been into history. Uh, I was the kid that wasn't reading storybooks growing up. I was reading Band of Brothers and World War II history and stuff like that. And um, I, I just I grew up. I loved history. Uh, when I went to school, I originally went to be a pharmacist, and uh, one thing led to another, and it just didn't play out. And uh, my dad said to me, "Well, you, you know, you always loved history. Why don't you go and do that? You're planning on going to school for six years anyway. Go get your master's and so on and so forth." And so that's that's what I did. And um, I always assumed I would have been a teacher. And uh, my senior year, I got an internship with the local military museum, and realized that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with artifacts and collections and ex- exhibits and things like that. Um, so I got my master's in public history from the University of Massachusetts. My undergrads from Pitt, and um, in 2016, I um, I always like to say uh, just complete dumbass luck, if I'm allowed to use that phrase. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I I got my job here at Oakmont. 
Um, I was uh, trying to get any job I could here in the Pittsburgh area, and uh, that's, one that's of the- not a bad one. You're no, right. <laughs> no, not at all. And uh, one, of, one, at all. one of the places I applied to, you know, said, Hey, we're all volunteers, but you know, thanks for your interest. And uh, you know, I responded back, Hey, at least, you know, thanks for an answer. It's kind of demoralizing when you don't even at least get that. And about a half hour later, she must've read my, um, my resume after that. And, uh, she goes, you need to call, uh, the then GM here, Paul Mraz and, and, and see if they need somebody cause they were doing tours. And, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. So I've been at Oakmont as the curator of collections since uh, uh, March of 2016. I also serve as the museum director at a local history museum here in the area in McKeesport, Pennsylvania. Uh, Since 2020, I've been the curator of history at nearby Allegheny Country Club, which is where I learned uh, the story of Mr. Byers that we'll be talking about here today. And uh, really in the last year or so, I've started doing some more independent stuff um, with other clubs. Um, I helped Frenchman's Reserve do some writing on Mr. Palmer. And uh, I just finished up a trophy case for Edgewood Country Club uh, here in town uh, about about two or three weeks ago. So um, I I am nothing if not busy, but uh, the golf history stuff, it's a job, but it doesn't really feel like work day in and day out. So it's pretty sweet. So let me ask you, with those three positions and all your work you do outside of it, I was wondering if you could share any cool stories, discoveries, or experiences in any of those positions. Um, boy, there's a lot. Um, you know, the Oakmont one has been probably the easiest job just because, you know, it's 20 national championships. And, you know, a lot of the story is known. There, there's very little that we've discovered that really hasn't been known over the last couple years though one interesting thing is we always said that opening day was october 1st 1904 and that always was just kind of you know that was the date we always ran with that date and i was digging into newspapers.com a couple months ago just out of you know it was a monday it was slow it was bored and i thought ah you know what i'm gonna start digging in and i found out that they had played matches here in August of 1904, West Penn golf matches. And I thought, well, you know, I guess the membership never played until October, but you know, the, the, the West Penn team that represented the club did. So, um, that's one of the interesting things here. Um, Allegheny, I think has been one of the, the really interesting ones. Um, I'm very lucky that the gentleman I work with over there is very passionate. He's an ex lawyer. He's retired. Um, so he spends a lot of time digging into stuff and then we kind of work on it from there. Um, one of the really cool things we found out there besides this, you know, this Eben Byer story and the story and the story of their entire family, really, um, in 1925, the week before the amateur is here at Oakmont and Bobby Jones really comes in and atones for his loss in 1919, Allegheny hosts a one day, basically U S amateur at their course. The Byers brothers host the event. Um, Dallas Byers, um, Eben's older brother, uh, puts up the trophy for the event. Or no, actually, no. Dallas Byers would have been dead by then. So Eben put up the trophy for the event. Um, And Chick Evans ends up winning it. He shoots the course record of 70. But according to the newspapers, Bobby Jones has the worst round of his entire entire amateur career where he shoots 81 and has 41 putts. And the newspapers just cannot get over the fact that, you know, he he shot 81 and had 41 putts on the day. And I think that I think it's the the most putts per in a round that he ever recorded or something like that. Um so that was one of the really interesting stories there. Um, as far as Edgewood's concerned, um, I think my favorite story is that uh, Alice Cooper's uh, go-to course when he's in town. Yeah, I love it. Um, so I'm a big Alice Cooper fan. When I found that out, uh, it was really hard to not include that somehow. Uh, Bobby Jones played there in 1927. Um, I did c- discover a picture of that, but it's been really hard to, to nail down exactly when he was there and things like that. Um, but the course over there has a long history with George Westinghouse. Uh, and his brother Herman. His brother Herman was one of the founders, and the one of the original sites was on Westinghouse's uh, Union Switch property, uh, and they were allowed to play golf on the property under two conditions. One, 
There was no golf on Sundays, which apparently the phones is hated, and it was a big reason that they left Edgewood. Oh, really? And created Oakmont, yeah. according to a couple things I read, and um, uh, and the other stipulation was that you know Westinghouse could take the property back at any point. So his brother actually built the clubhouse, but made it so it could be disassembled and moved. Oh, uh, wow. because he just yeah. never trusted when his brother was going to take the property. Back. <laughs> I'll so, spend the money, but I'll yeah. make it movable. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's the thing. Western Pennsylvania just has a, a, a ton of golf history. A lot of people don't, don't know about it. Doesn't get the, you know, Oakmont does. Oakmont gets a lot of the attention, but the, the, the surrounding courses, just Pittsburgh you know, in general. Yeah. Has amazing golf history. It right? does. It really, really does. You know, between Arnold Palmer and, you know, Carol Semple Thompson, you know, yeah, you have those great players, but you know, some of the, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, well, you know, what, which place is your favorite to work? And I said, well, it's, you know, it's hard to pick one, you know, and, and it's hard to pick one over the other. I said, but I, I've come to find that, you know, the, the Alleghenies and the Edgewoods, they kind of have the more interesting stories because they didn't have national championships and they didn't have, you know, Palmer versus Nicholas. They didn't have Miller 63, but they had, you know, uh, Eben Byers and they had Carol Semple Thompson and things Unknown like that. history, right? right? Yeah. I mean, Oakmont has been publicized from day one. I mean, it was making national news with phones creating this championship course. So if you're in the sun that much, it casts a lot of shadows. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other big thing is too is you know the the other courses in the area you know your Fox Chapels had you know the Senior Players Championship a couple times uh, the Pittsburgh Field Club had the PGA back in the day um, you know but there's just so many great stories like you covered Pittsburgh Golf Club and how it oh, really has one of had, my favorite stories I've done yeah. yeah and how it hasn't really had golf since 1910 or the 30s or whatever date you want to put on it and. You know, it's uh, it's it's a great region for for golf history, and one I think probably gets a little overlooked. Um, but that's why we're here today because yeah, we're going to share absolutely. one of those stories. And we're gonna we're gonna dive in the story of Eben Byers. Uh, how did you get interested in Eben? Where did you first come across that name? At least from a club standpoint, was that at Allegheny? Actually, it was at Oakmont. Hmm. Um, Oakmont lists Eben as their first U.S. Amateur champion. And uh, looking back at it, he, he does become a member at Oakmont after his win in 1906. Um, but in reality, he was Allegheny's guy through and through. And, um, you know, all the research and, and the work I've been doing with Allegheny since 2020, you know, he's probably one of the top five most important figures uh, in that club's history, if not the number one. Um you know, Byers really um, has the the family had a very big impact in the founding of the club, and really the first forty years or so, even fifty years, um, that you know they 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 really were one of the key families in fo- in founding Allegheny, and then they were one of the key families of early golf history in Western Pennsylvania between Eben and his brother. Um, but Eben was the real he was the stud, you know, WC phones was probably the better player. Um, but, but Evan Byers was, was right there with him uh, in those early years uh, of golf here in this area. So even before Evans born in 1880, the Byers yep. family was a family, certainly of means, yep. right? Can you share a little bit about their history before Evan, as far as uh, his father occupation and how well off was the family? Sure. So the Byers would, would have been one of the most affluent families um, in the region by the time that Eben's born in April of 1880. His father was um, Alexander Byers, and he was born uh, in the eastern side of Pennsylvania, actually to a farmer. And I'm not exactly sure how he ends up in the steel business, but for, since he was a boy, he ends up in the steel industry in eastern Pennsylvania. And then he comes to Pittsburgh in 1857, right before the American Civil War. And he gets involved in a couple of steel companies out here. And they happen to get a lot of the Union Army contracts once war breaks out in 1861. And Byers becomes an incredibly rich man because of his association with the steel industry, because of these Union Army contracts. 
And um, yeah, they, they, the Byers become one of the most affluent families in Western Pennsylvania uh, after that. Uh, he founds his first solo-ish firm in 1864, and then in 1870, he purchases um, the Gerard Iron and Steel Company, which was in Ohio. Um, and that would be a big part of the company, of the family's holdings, uh, even up through the lives of Eben and, and his brothers. And then in 1886, he officially buys out all of the partners. Uh, AM Buyers does this and uh, creates AM Buyers and Company. And what they made uh, was steel wrought pipe. Uh, that was that was the the steel business that they were in. They were in the pipe business. Um, their biggest mill, uh, especially in the 1800s, as Eben's growing up, would have been on the south side of Pittsburgh. And then um, after Allegheny moves down the river to Sewickley, and a lot of the family moves out that way, uh, the buyers open up another uh, mill in what's called Ambridge, which is probably probably about 15 miles down the Ohio river from downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, and the, and those would be the two flagship mills in Western Pennsylvania on top of, uh, the Gerard iron and steel company out in Ohio. So, uh, Alex, Alexander Byer starts all that. He runs all that until his death, uh, which would be in 18 or 1900. Um, he would marry his wife in 1864 and they would have uh, five children. Uh, Maud Byers uh, was the first, a daughter born in 1869. And she would go on to marry um, Jay Deniston Lyon, who was uh, a banker and later one of the very longstanding presidents of Allegheny Country Club. And then uh, Alex Byers Jr. is born in uh, 19, or 1872. Uh, he goes into banking. Dallas Byers is born three years later. He would go into the steel business with Eben and his father. Uh, Eben's born in 1880. And then the last child is John Frederick Byers, born in 1881. Uh, and we'll talk about him in, in, in probably more in a little bit. Um, he's a very important figure uh, in Western Pennsylvania golf, too. But that's the family, and that's basically uh, you know the story in terms of how they come to be of such prominence is uh, great timing on, on AM buyers as part of getting into the steel business in Pittsburgh, right. As the civil war is about to break out. Well, there seems to be a lot of good timing. I mean, obviously it yeah. looks like did, uh, I assume buyers Allegheny was founded in 1895, correct? Correct. Yep. So then you have Eben would have been right around 15 years old. Correct. So again, good timing. You're catching yeah. somebody still in their youth, still, um, I, I believe you said he was a very athletic child athletic young man yeah he he was um he was always considered a very robust athletic uh guy he, I, i'm not exactly sure how tall he was uh probably you know the average american male at this time is somewhere between five six five seven five eight somewhere in there um so he's probably about that you know that tall um but always considered and and, and characterized with an athletic build um at one point he was about 180 pounds of you know pure muscle um and, um, yeah, I mean, he was just, he was a fantastic player, uh, really right from the get go. He, he learns golf as soon as Allegheny's founded in 1895. So he's 15 essentially when he picks up the game. Is that about right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. We, it, it's, it, it's hard to really nail it down. Golf doesn't really come to Pittsburgh until 1893, um, which would be a podcast in, a, in and of itself to, to discuss how golf officially comes here. Um, but the first course isn't found until 1895, and that's Allegheny. So chances are Eben would have learned the game sometime between 1894, 1895, so 13, 14, 15 years old, um, by a gentleman named John Moorhead, who is considered the father of golf in western Pennsylvania, and he's the founder of Allegheny Country Club. And all these guys that found Allegheny, including the buyers – lived um in what is what was known as allegheny city which is now the north side of pittsburgh um so if you if you're ever here it's you know the side of the river where pnc park heinz field allegheny general hospital um all that is and 
the uh, the rich street was known as Ridge Avenue, and all the big big name guys, all the steel barons, all the bankers, a lot of the founders of Allegheny all lived on that street. So it's very likely that buyers learned golf from John Moorhead himself right, at I've Allegheny. Heard of it. Yeah. What what's the first notation we have of Eben Byers and golf? What let's call it the first public record is that. 1899 at Yale, or is there something before that? From what I found, it's Yale. Um, there, you know, my guess is he probably would have played in high school. He went to, uh, I believe he went to St. Paul's, um, up in New Hampshire. I want to say, um, most of the, most of the buyers boys followed suit. They all went to this private school up in, up in new England. And then most of them went to Yale. Um, but one of the first big points of Evan Byers in terms of national notoriety comes in 1900. Yeah, 1900 was a big year for him. Yeah, uh, it's the start. It really is the start because uh, he, I think he's a junior at Yale at that time. He would win the Yale championship um, either that year or the following year. But he, uh, as a student that year, he takes on Harry Varden as part of Varden's 1900 American tour. Yeah, I mean, Harry Varden is uh, at the, at the peak of his powers. Yes. Right. The unbeatable yeah. really and, Harry Varden. And, uh, he, he plays a best ball match with a, with a kid named Charles Hitchcock, uh, at the Yale course, uh, Varden Which, to be shoots- fair. That's two people versus Varden. That's yeah. how he'd take on people. He was so good. He'd take on two, either pros or two amateurs, their best ball versus him, and he'd still win most of the matches. I think he only lost what four or four or five matches that entire trip out of a yeah. hundred and some matches or yeah. something like that. Um, well, he certainly took took care of Byers and Hitchcock because he beats him eight down or eight up. <laughs> um, Byers shoots ninety one, uh, twenty shots worse than Varden, who who sets the course record. Um, but Varden does have nice things to say about Byers afterwards, despite the fact that he, you know, he shoots this 91. What, what um, did he say? Do, can you paraphrase? Uh, basically that, you know, this kid has some serious talent, you know, kind of, kind of keep an eye out for him is he didn't play well today, but he, he could it's see there. It. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he faces Varden that year. He goes on, he wins the uh, the Yale Championship. I want to say it's that fall. Yeah, it's 1900. For 1900, yeah. yep. And then, uh, and then after, and then he finishes in the round of 16 at the amateur that year. And that's so the first. That's his first, right? That's his first attempt at, at claiming the Havemeyer. Um, and in the West Penn uh, tournaments, uh, he participates. I'm not exactly sure where he falls. Um, I know he didn't win the open or the amateur that year. That, that, that reign really doesn't start until 1901. Um, but 1900 is really the start of buyers becoming a household name. And over the next 10 years, he would become one of the names in American golf. Right. And I mean, 1900 though, I don't know if they played each other that, that kicks off the amazing rivalry, uh, between phones. WC yes. phones and buyers, which really, you know, I've done when I was doing research for on Pittsburgh golf club and I got into the Western Pennsylvania open and amateur. Those two names are synonymous with that. And it really was, it was a national event. Yeah. It's the Western Pennsylvania, but it was a massive event. It was carried in newspapers in California and New York and buyers and phones start making a name for themselves before winning the U S amateur. I mean, they were yeah. known names. So oh, yeah. 18 years. I mean, it's, it's a pivotal year for him in the early 1900s. How can I put this? His, his main rivalry kicks off, whether it's that year or the following years, maybe we can dive into a little bit of that rivalry that he had with WC phones. Now, much of that sure. was due to proximity, right? They lived in the same city or, there, or thereabout, and they had this 20-year rivalry. Maybe if you could dive into that rivalry that really shaped or perhaps put Western Pennsylvania on the map across the country. Sure, yeah. I, the two of them really bring Western Pennsylvania golf to the national level because really for the next 20 
uh, even 30 years, because by the time 1920 hits, Byers is kind of out of the game, so to speak, and, and WC's impact is transforming from player to administrator. But in those early years, it was their golf that you know brought them to to national prominence, and thus brought West Penn golf to national prominence. Um, from 1900 till 1920, they faced each other at least a hundred times in competition. <laughs> that's whether, unbelievable, you know whether Huge that's the, the West Penn Open, the West Penn Amateur, um, West Penn team matches, just random individual tournaments. I mean, we're talking a hundred a hundred times that that we can safely guess that they faced off um and their record in the west penn amateur they they dominated really from the beginning the, the very first went west penn amateurs 1899 um but from 1900 to 1916 wc phones wins a record eight west penn amateur titles buyers win six uh, phones finishes runner up five times buyers finishes runner up three times they were final finalists uh, you know, 13 for phones, nine for buyers, and they faced each other in the final six times. And phones had the the best of buyers in terms of that, uh, in terms of that record. Um, and then in the West Penn Open, they each won two. Uh, buyers finished runner up one more time, and phones finished runner up three more times. Um, so in, in that set of play, you know they they were the leading two guys in terms of, in terms of the amateurs. Uh, when you, when you look at the West Penn open in that era, um, the really only dominant name would be Jock Hutchison. He would win it five or six times from 1909 till he leaves to go to Illinois in 1917. Um, but you know, those two are, are always there neck and neck, you know, beating the best professionals in the area. Uh, and then just absolutely dominating the, the amateur. Um, and the other big tournament at the time that gets overlooked, and, and this is something that I would not have known if it wasn't for my work with Allegheny, is uh, to this day there's, a, there's an annual tournament held at the club. It's called the, now it's called the Men's Invitational. Um, but dating back to its founding in 1898, it was called the, it was called the Interstate Cup but eventually became the Allegheny Invitational Championship or Men's Invitational or whatever. But from 1900 till probably about 1920 um, and definitely up until the the Depression hits, the Allegheny Invitational Tournament was one of the the biggest amateur tournaments in the country. You know, the the U.S. Amateur, the Western Amateur, um, you know, the Met Amateur – and uh, the West Penn Amateur, they're, they're going to be definitely bigger tournaments. But this is probably one of the top 10 tournaments in the country. It, it, it got all the big names. You had, you know, the Byerses and the Phoneses locally. But you also had A.W. Tillinghast. You had Jerry Travers. You had multiple U.S. Amateur, Walter Travis, multiple U.S. Amateur champions, Western Amateur champions that would come in for this event. And, um, you know, WC phones won it seven times buyers won it four times. And, uh, like I said, you know, it, they didn't beat, you know, it wasn't your average club championship. You, you know, you were beating some of the best amateurs in the country at the time. And, um, it, it's, it, it's a pretty interesting tournament. It has a, a very interesting history to itself, um, for a number of reasons, but you know, at this time it, it adds to their rivalry because, you know, phones played, it had a great career at Allegheny. He, uh, he's won multiple, multiple tournaments there. Um, you know, and, and it was Byers' home course. So, you know, phones comes in and kind of gives him the business on his home course, you know, quite a few times. Um, so yeah, but during that time, you know, 1900s and 19, really up until World War One, the two of them, you know, you could count on one of them being in the finals of the West Penn Amateur, and more often than not, one of them won it. Uh, just real impressive, really impressive play. Yeah, I love this period of golf. I mean, I think I love it because it's really underrated uh, from you know a historical standpoint. It's you know pre 1913 U.S. Open where. Uh, you know, Francis, we met gets this, the national spotlight for amateur golfers. Sure. Walter Travis was a, 
uh, a household name, but there's so many great amateurs out there that are basically building the foundation that, you know, Bobby Jones and Francis, we met, took up that mantle for. Um, and, and these two between phones, uh, maybe, I, I guess, I don't know, we hit upon it, maybe hit on, you know, outside of the golf, the impact WC phones had on the game of golf, specifically the creation of Oakmont and um, maybe touch upon, you know, his will and strength to build Oakmont into the championship course, just so people have a, sure. a wider view of the man. Yeah. So WC phones is a, another interesting character and, and, and really probably a, a, a podcast in and of himself. Absolutely. If you really 100%. want to spend the time, we'll do that. Um, he's born in 1877. Like the rest of the family, he goes into the steel business. Um, unfortunately he has heart problems from a relatively early age that he has a heart attack. I think at about 28 years old, he has this heart attack in his twenties and, and basically is kind of forced to retire from the steel business. So from that point on, you know, the, the family had money. Um, Henry sold the carry furnace to Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie made them incredibly wealthy, uh, in 1898. So, I mean, he really didn't have to worry about working. So he devotes his life to golf and he's one of the first greens chairman, if not the first greens chairman at Oakmont. And he's just a hell of a player, uh, wins the 1910 U S amateur. And as he grew climbs the ladder uh, of in the national ranks as far as as a player then Oakmont climbs the ladder with him which eventually leads to Oakmont getting the amateur in 1919 and the open in 27 and you know becoming what it does um so he, he's a stellar player really up until probably until the early 20s you know he he's a contemporary of of we met and Travers and um and Chick Evans, and once Bobby Jones takes over there in the early 20s, you know, by that point, WC is close to 50. Um, he's still a very capable player. He would win the West Penn Open, I think, in 21 or 24 as, you know, a, a near 50-year-old. Um, but it's during that time where he shifts into more of an administrative role um, and becomes a, a major part of the USGA. So in 1921, as we tell it here, he really founds the Walker Cup. He takes that initial group of Americans over to Great Britain in 1921 to try to get these matches going. Um, the USGA didn't really want any part of it. The RNA didn't really want any part of it. And then it turns out to be a hit. And they're like, yeah, okay, we want a part of it sort of thing. Um, so the next year, uh, the USGA and the RNA sign up. We're, we're doing the Walker Cup. And it's actually Eben Byers' brother, who is then the USGA president, that officially signs off on Interesting. It. I didn't know that part. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and, and then WC becomes the first uh, Ameri official American captain in 1922. And the Americans with uh, Bobby Jones, Francis We Met, Chick Evans, Jess Sweeser. Like one of uh, the greatest teams of I, all time. You're talking 1992 dream team sort yeah. of lineup yeah. for that era. Um, you know, they go out uh, at the National Golf Links of America and they beat the Great Britain team eight to four. And uh, what's interesting, and, and uh, I hope Stephen Proctor's listening, because yeah. he'll be uh, happy to know that uh, uh, his his boy uh, Bernard Darwin ends up uh, captaining that team. Kind of just came over to to cover the matches and somehow ends up uh, becoming the captain and playing in it. And uh, so you know, WC starts the Walker Cup, brings that to prominence. Um, he was always on the balls and implements committee. I, you know, basically the, the technology of the game for the USGA. Um, so he, he served on that committee the, for the majority of his time on the executive committee and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in 24 and 25, he becomes the vice president. And then in 1926 and 27, he becomes the president of the USGA. Um, and by that point, Oakmont is starting to really – become an upper echelon club in the country they've had by the time we host the open in 27 we have had two u.s amateurs and a pga and then from then on we'd you know add up to we're 20 national champions as championships as of today yeah 21 another, coming up 21 coming up 22 and, after that right i mean it's just, yeah it's uh i think we're i think we'll get close to 30 by the time 
it's by the time 2050 comes, I think, I think there's 10 more tournaments or something amazing. like that. Now, that's so. not that's not counting all the amazing matches where I'm out there and the crowds yeah. come in and oh yeah that's whew, we don't write about those stories <laughs> folks they usually end with me in tears um, <laughs> let's let's jump forward so um, Evan Byers has an amazing amateur career a uh, lot of U.S. amateurs but let's jump forward into his amazing Triple Crown year of 1906 because that is you know. Obviously, not not a comparable to the Grand Slam year, but it's it's predating a Grand Slam that really doesn't exist in the eyes of of golf followers. So, walk me through that amazing year of 1906 for Evan Byers. Sure. So, um, in 1902 and 1903, Byers finishes runner up in the amateur, um, which is a big deal. I mean, there's there's very few guys that you know, especially in today's day and age, that would you know, that make the final three times and, and so on and so forth. So he's got two runner up finishes and, um, we talked about, uh, WC phones being his rival on the, on the local scale. Well, in the national level, Byers big rival is going to be Walter Travis. Yeah, probably everybody's rival. Yeah. Believe it or not. <laughs> so good. Um, yeah. But, but their record against each other is, is pretty impressive when you look at it. But so 1906, the triple crown season as I, as I put it for, for buyers when it comes to that, um, he wins the West Penn amateur that year and it's at his home course at Allegheny. Uh, he defeats a guy from Pittsburgh golf club named, uh, F Warren K in the finals 10 and nine. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a home game for him, but it's, it, it's held in cold weather. Um, and, but he still goes out and just, you know, annihilates this, this poor K guy. Uh, a couple weeks later, it's the West Penn open again. It's at Allegheny. He shoots 74, 72 and wins by three shots over, uh, a future, uh, Oakmont pro named Charlie Rowe. And then over his, uh, own professional Fred brand senior, um, whose son Fred Brand Jr. would go on to be uh, a very important USGA figure uh, later on in his life. So he's got the the two big local tournaments, um, and Byers held uh, you know again very wealthy family, uh, especially at this point he would be in charge of not only the Gerard Iron and Steel Company that his father bought back in the 1870s, he would be the head of that by this time, but he'd also be one of the, the board members of A.M. Byers Company in general. So he's got houses all over, um, including Long Island. So he also plays in the Met Metropolitan Golf Association Amateur Championship that year. And that's hosted at St. Andrews and uh, includes quite the field. It has... Walter Travis, it has Jerome Travers, really before Jerome Travers becomes a huge figure in American golf. Uh, it's got Finley Douglas, Fred Harrishoff, who finished runner-up in a couple of amateurs, Archie Reed, you know, it's, it's kind of a who's who. And Byers goes in there and, you know, makes relatively easy work of a couple of these guys. You know, he beats uh, Harrishoff in 20 holes. He beats a guy named J.P. Tiffany in the next round. I could not figure out who he played in the quarterfinals. I, I looked in every newspaper I could, and <laughs> it's just like that was a that was a blank. But then he faces Walter Travis in the semis, and he beats Travis. Um, and he's got a really good record against Walter Travis. If I had Does to character, he? yeah, walk walk us through that record. Do you know off the top of your head? Um, I know he beats him in. Where does he beat him? In in 1902, in his run to the to the finals at the amateur, he beats him in the third round, one up. And then the following year, Travis beats him in the final, five and four, um, to win his third Havemeyer and fourth years and what would prove to be his last one. Though I will say there is a little bit of a caveat on that. Byers kind of comes in um, not having his full attention on the match, because uh, their mill on the south side the night before caught fire. That's and 1903. Caused, and, uh, in 1903 and causes about $20,000 worth of damage. So Byers is kind of, you know, he shows up on the first tee. He's kind of out of it, definitely tired, definitely mined uh, elsewhere uh, because of what's going on at home. Um, and, and Travis beats him five and four. Um but you know, still, yeah. That's and, that. and, and maybe equate that. What is twenty thousand dollars back then to where we are today? 
uh, a little over six hundred thousand. Yeah, so it wasn't chump change. He just lost no. six hundred thousand dollars. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Heavier than any Betty's going to make. And at their biggest mill, you know, no less. The, the, yeah. This the fires at their Southside Mill, which is their their big money maker. Um, 1904-1905, Byers has, you know, kind of a down year. He finishes in the quarterfinals of the amateur in 05. Um, but, you know, Travis is still kind of uh, the top of the top of the game there. I believe he wins the British amateur in 1904. So then we come into 1906 and, you know, uh, Byers beats Travis at the, in the semis of this uh, the Met Golf amateur. And then Jerry Travers ends up winning the whole thing, defeats Byers uh, three and one. Uh, and one of the interesting things is afterwards the, the MGA kind of calls to like, okay, we're not going to let anybody that's not at an MGA club play anymore. Cause oh, we, really? We, that was what I read in the newspapers wow. and whether that ends up, uh, becoming the, the case going forward or not. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but in a couple of the newspapers I read, they were, the, there was comments of, all right, we gotta, maybe we shouldn't be letting these guys, uh, outsiders you know, out- can't have outsiders come in. Yeah, exactly. Um, so th- that was one of the interesting things. And the other interesting thing about that runner-up finish is uh, who's on his bag, and that's Jock Hutchison. And that's really going to play. This for the key. Met Golf? That's for the Met Golf. Okay. Hutchison's right. on the bag then, too. And then, uh, as it turns out, Hutchison would be on the bag for the win at the U.S. Amateur. Yeah, and walk, walk us through maybe why that was a little controversial. Well, um, the biggest reason being was Jock Hutchison was a professional uh, at uh, at that point. Um, Hutchison had ties to Western Pennsylvania, even though he didn't get here yet um, in 1906, because the Hutchison brothers were brought over to America by W.C. Carnegie, uh, who was Andrew Carnegie's uh, nephew. And he was a very prominent member at Pittsburgh Golf Club and at Allegheny. So he brings over Tom Hutchison first. And uh, Tom Hutchison, unfortunately, dies tragically in a horseback riding accident. And then he brings Jock over about a year or two later to kind of finish Tom's work. Uh, And what Tom was hired to do was to build a course on um, Cumberland Island. Is that the Carnegie's Island off the Florida Georgia coast there? I want to say it's Cumberland Island. And um, basically, he, he was brought in to build a course and teach the family how to play golf. And then in the winter, and then in the summertime, when Carnegie was either in Pittsburgh or in, in New York or in the New York region, then Jock or Tom was slated to go north with him, and, and WC gets him a job at one of the big clubs. So at this point, I think Jock would be at um, – I know in, in his first year there, he was with Pittsburgh Golf Club, and he was the pro for one year, and then the club yep. basically shut down and became yeah. public, right? Uh, well, he's a Pittsburgh Golf Club from 1909 to 1911. In 1906, I want to say he's either at St. Andrews as the as one of the pros, or he's at Shinnecock as one of the pros. Um, he's, he's still in the New York region at that time. But WC, Carnegie's uh, membership at Allegheny, him and Byers knew each other. And, and WC trusted Jock Hutchison like no other. So they're playing these Eastern courses, you know, these, these, uh, New York courses, Jock knows them, WC knows them. So WC makes sure that Evan has somebody with knowledge on the back. And so he pulls Jock, who's a pro, which unsettles quite a few. It's not illegal to be fair. It was completely, it was completely legal. It was totally allowed. Um, but the farther Eben makes it up the, you know, through the tournament, the more grumbles there are that, oh, hey, well, you know, he's got a pro on the bag. He's got a pro on the bag. And in fact, by the time he reaches the finals, you know, it's really become a talking point to the point that A.W. Tillinghast offers to caddy for George Lyon in the finals to kind of, you know, even the score, so to speak. And Lyon says, well, you know, this kid that's carrying my bag's doing a pretty good job. I don't want to break the rhythm sort of thing. I'm, I'm going to keep going with him. Um, but, you know, Walter Travis was quoted in the newspaper saying he thought it was, you know, an unfair advantage that Byers had a pro. And, you know, a couple of the other big name guys did too. Um, you know, none of them fought it to the point of, you know, 
the USGA getting involved, but there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of comments made that happened to find their way into the newspapers. And, um, but Hey, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it was totally allowed. Jock was, you know, allowed says to the historian, uh, Allegheny country club. I'm yeah, just kidding. I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. Well, that's true. No, but, but no, but you know, I agree. I mean, yeah. it's, it wasn't against the rules, whether it was unkempt or something else is, Hey, I mean, it wasn't against the rules. You had something that you, clearly you felt comfortable with in a prior win. And I, I suppose the, the common practice would have used uh, probably the caddies from those golf clubs. That's probably what they used. That would be my guess. Yeah. yeah. That's so, amazing. That's a really yeah. cool story though. Yeah. So anyway, we get into the 1906 amateur. Um, Byers qualifies for match play. Shoots 162. Uh, you know, basically has an easy road to the semifinals when he faces Walter Travis yet again. Um, and the newspaper said that it was such poor play on both of their parts that the spectators abandoned their match to go watch uh, the other match, which <laughs> featured uh, George Lyon. Uh, and according to, you know, basically just looking at the hole by hole is, is Byers played well tee to green, but was just horrendous on the putting greens. And Travis just did not have it that day. Uh, and, uh, Byers makes it through four and three to face George Lyon, who, uh, at that point was the Olympic gold medalist from Canada. Um, and Byers would go on to defeat Lyon, uh, two up in the final, Lyon jumps out to kind of a big lead early, uh, thanks to a short game. And the the newspapers say that he's uh, he's got some sort of magic power. He's he's a wizard around the greens. Um, but Byers kind of gets it back into respectable terms by the afternoon eighteen, and with nine holes to go, they're all square. And then uh, he ends up winning two up to finally claim uh, the Havemeyer Trophy after three uh, three t- three uh, f- finalist finishes. So. Um, so that's really the, the, the peak for, for Evan is, you know, he wins in 1906. He has that big year. Um, he would go on to continue to play well regionally, but as far as on the national scene, you know, that, that's, that's pretty much the end of it. You know, he finished in the, uh, semifinals in 1907, he'd lose to Jerry Travers who would go on to win the first of four, uh, us amateurs that year. Uh, he'd lose in the quarterfinals in 1908. And then after that, it's just, a, you know, a string of, you know, first and second round exits really for him, um, all the way up to world war two, uh, world war one. And then, uh, he doesn't even qualify, uh, for match play in the 1919 amateur at Oakmont. And then after that, he's kind of gone. He's kind of, he's kind of done. And then in 1913, I guess as a, I guess a, you know, a bookend to that is he gets to play Harry Varden again. So he kind of plays Harry Varden on the front end of his career and kind of the back end of his career or, or towards the back yep. end of his career. Yeah. Uh, twice he, he, or he plays Varden three times. The first time is the, the one we talked about in 1900. Uh, and then in, uh, 1913 on, on, uh, Varden and Ray's, uh, grand tour of America that was, uh, thwarted there by Francis. We met at, uh, at, at the end, Byers plays Varden and Ray uh, in October or in August of 1913 with a gentleman uh, from Cleveland at Mayfield Country Club, and they lose five down. And then about a month later, uh, he he teams up with his uh, local rival WC Phones. They play here at Oakmont, and Varden and Ray still uh, take. I mean, it to it's Varden and Ray. Yeah, it's Varden <laughs> right? and Ray uh, at Oakmont. You know, so that's. Uh, that's pretty cool, and uh, they fall four down to, to Varden and Ray. And then, um, yeah, after that, like I said, uh, really after World War I, that's, that, that's kind of it for, for Evan. You know, he, he really is just top class from 1900 to 1910 and then starts to kind of go down and play mediocre, really, in the, in the teens there uh, before kind of disappearing altogether in the 20s. So he's he's on the tail end of his career. Um, another decade passes, and we we get into Evan Byer's sad, horrific downfall. Walk us through the events of how we got there. Like what accident happened that necessitated the miracle cure that put him in this horrific position. 
so the the Byers family has kind of got a long history with tragic ends, really. They um, really do. Alexander Byers Jr. was in his early 20s, and um, in 1899, he was 27 years old, got sick like on a Monday, and then just fell over dead two days later. And it was never released of what happened and, and, and you know, why he died, how he died. It was just a, a tragic, tragic end for such a young man. And his father was just heartbroken by it. And he really never recovered. He, he passes away the following year. Uh, so that's 1900. Nine years later, the then eldest brother, Dallas, who uh, at that point would have been in, in charge of the AM Byers uh, company, is vacationing in France and, and suffers a stroke and a couple of days later passes away. And it's just, you know, it just seems to be one thing after another. These, these just absolutely freak, tragic ends um, for the men of the Byers family. And unfortunately, it, it, it follows Eben. Um, in 1927, you know, he was a Yale alumni, graduates in 1901. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a big sportsman. And um, Allegheny has a very large, especially at that time, had a very large Yale um, alumni group. A lot of the founding members were all Yale guys and all of them were big football guys. In fact, um, John Moorhead who founded the club, OD Thompson, um, actually played on the Yale teams, with Walter camp that wow. did, the, you know, I think OD Thompson is the guy that caught the first forward pass. Um, so football is huge. You know, football has always been huge in Western Pennsylvania. It still is today. Um, but it was, you know, it was big for these guys back then too. So the, uh, Eben Byers every year, he went to the Hale, uh, the Yale Harvard football game. It, he, he did not miss it. And, uh, that year it was at, uh, it was at Harvard in Cambridge and Yale wins 14, nothing. I think Yale actually wins the national championship that year. And on his return home, uh, he's in his train berth and just happens to fall out of it and injure his arm. Um, there's no, there's no notation that he broke his arm or broke a wrist or anything. He just, he landed on his arm. It hurt. And when he gets back to Pittsburgh, he goes to, uh, his doctor who is, uh, Dr. Charles Moyer and Dr. Moyer prescribes him Radithor. And what Radithor is, is it's, uh, you know, it was supposed to be this miracle medicine. And in reality, it was, uh, just some sort of snake oil concoction, um, that featured triple distilled water with a guaranteed microcurry of both radium-226 and radium-228. And it was created by this guy named William J. Bailey, who was really kind of uh, a career con artist uh, and quack doctor. Um, you know, he claimed that he was, you know, a, a, a Harvard-trained doctor, but in reality, you know, he dropped out because he couldn't afford it. And then claimed he had a doctorate from the University of Vienna. There's no record of it. And um, coming out of World War One, especially in the early 20s, he gets involved in this this radium stuff and creates all these different, you know, sham companies and flim flam, you know, uh, cure all things. And one of them is this Radithor, which is radioactive, which is radioactive. I mean, basically just drinking straight radioactive water. Yeah. And, uh, Moyer prescribes this to, to buyers and, you know, at the time buyers is, you know, close to 50. Um, he certainly isn't as robust and youthful as he would have been, but you know, most of us aren't at that point. And, um, you know, he starts drinking this radium water and he was drinking three bottles a day, uh, for about three years. And, you know, at the, in the beginning he loved it, you know, his, his arm, Stopped hurting him. He felt, you know, much younger. He felt revitalized. You know, he's thinking, oh, hey, this stuff's pretty great. You know, I'm going to be living living the life of Riley here if I keep drinking this stuff. And uh, that was the case until he started losing his teeth. Wow. Which is like two years later. So he's drinking three bottles a day for like two years. Yeah, about two and a half years. Um, and in 1929, he has to have a tooth pulled. And it just doesn't heal. It, it, it's, you know, c constantly seeping and, it, you know, the, the sore just or the wound just never heals. 
And then he starts losing more teeth. And he goes to uh, a Dr. Joseph Steiner in New York. And, you know, he's, you know, taking a look at Byers and, and seeing what he's seeing. And, and he recognizes it right away that it's very similar to what the, the radium girls of the 1920s or 1910s and 1920s were enduring. Um, and those are girls that worked in a watch factory, right? That were correct. painting dials with the radium isotope that would allow them to glow at, you know, at night or, correct. you know, yeah. for pilots or for whatever yep. reason. Yep, and uh, there's a great podcast on that. I believe it's the podcast Criminal. Uh, I would highly recommend that to hear more about the Radium Girls. But it's a similar situation. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it's the, it's the same exact thing. And this Dr. Steiner recognizes it immediately. He recommends uh, buyers to go see this Dr. Frederick Flynn, who was a Radium expert from Columbia University. And, you know, Dr. Flynn right away is diagnoses him with terminal Radium poisoning. Um. You know, and, is this, and we this think is, this is still 1929. Uh, my guess is by this point we're we're going into 1930. Yeah. Um, and then by 1931, I mean it is beyond repair. So um, basically, what happens is is in this period when when Byers is you know diagnosed and all this stuff about the Radium Girls is coming out and this is going and that is going to trial. Um, the Federal Trade Commission opens up a case against Dr. Bailey and this Radithor. And um, the the FTC sends this lawyer, uh, his name was Robert Lynn, sends him up to Byers' uh, Long Island house and, you know, to interview him. And at this point, this is 1931, you know, and in the beginning we talked about Byers was, you know, he was about 5'8". At his peak, he was probably about 180 pounds you know, pure athlete's body, you know, and when, when Lynn walks into this house, what he sees is, is something out of a horror movie, really, for lack of a better term. Um, by this point, Byers is absolutely riddled with cancer. Um, he has abscesses in his skull that go down into, you know, the, you could see his brain. Uh, he was, he weighed less than a hundred pounds. He had gray gaunt skin and probably the most horrific of it is he was suffering from what a lot of people that have radium poisoning suffer from is, is what's called radium jaw. And basically what happens with, with, with radium poisoning is it's radium is very similar to calcium in the body, you know, you're always told when you're a little kid, drink your milk is going to give you strong bones. And, and, and they're right because calcium leaves these deposits in your bones to make them big and strong. Radium has the, the opposite effect. Radium eats away at the bone, at, at the bone marrow, at the tissue and everything. So it goes to the, the, the weaker bones in the body and particularly, you know, it, it, it seems to affect the jaw bones the most. And a lot of people that are uh, diagnosed with radium jaw often have their upper and lower jaws amputated. And uh, Evan Byers was one of those. Um, you know, at the time, the doctors thought that this was a life-saving procedure. And, and in reality, by that point, it's, it, it, if you have radium jaw, it's, you're already too far gone. And so he sees them at 100 pounds versus 180 holes in his skull and missing the entire lower jaw part of his jaw. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you can, you can see pictures of it. If you yeah. Google, I was just going to tell people that like you yeah. can, you can actually see a photo of Evan Byers. It is not one for the light of heart, I would say. No. So I'm not encouraging you to go take a look, but you can really see the, you the, can see the damage of yeah. what this, this stuff does. Um, you know, and, and at this point he's 50 years old. You know, he should have been at the peak of his life and he's just, uh, he's just a shell of a human being by the time, you know, this, this attorney interviews him. What, what do we and, learn from that interview? Um, I mean, could, how could he communicate? Do we know that? I, I guess that he could still talk, but just very, very, very little. Yeah. Um, and I think really the the case was kind of made already, and it was basically just kind of coming in and confirming, like, hey, like, you you, you drank three bottles a day of this stuff, right? Yeah, 
you know, you drank it because this doctor prescribed it. Yeah. You know, you, you, what was the injury that, you know, led to this? You know, I fell out of the train, but I hurt my arm. You know, I, I don't think it was, it wasn't a back and forth conversation like we were having, like we're having it, it, it's, it's, I think it's more of, you know, can you confirm this, 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 and this, and that's the testimony of Evan Byers. Um, I mean, di- dive into that court case. I mean, eh, that alone is shocking. Well, I, I mean, what's absolutely flabbergasting to me about it is, you know, Evan Byers would end up dying the following March uh, of acute radium poisoning. And the FTC case against Bailey, he's never charged with the murder of Byers. He's never charged with criminal you know, manslaughter or anything against any of these people yeah. that drank that water. Even all- when he knew, I mean, at some point he yeah. knew and he kept prescribing it like yep. unbelievable. And basically the FTC and the FDA basically said, just stop making it that, that, and that was it. So, um, buyers dies on March 31st, 1932, just a few days short of, uh, of his birthday. Um, the autopsy revealed that he died, and he actually had two autopsies done, which was which was weird. Uh, I guess there was some inaccuracies in the first one, and then they they do the second one. But the autopsy revealed that Byers died of you quote radium poisoning resulting in necrosis of the jaw, which is radium jaw, abscesses of the brain, anemia, and bronchial pneumonia. Um, what they find uh, once they examine his bones is that he has 36 micrograms of radium in his bones, which is more than three times the lethal amount. Ten micrograms of, uh, of radium should kill you. Uh, and somehow he had 36. In, that's, and uh, that's three years after taking his last dose of it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so his body's brought back to Pittsburgh. His, his brother, JF, um, hosts the, the funeral at his home in Swickley before he's buried uh, in Pittsburgh's Allegheny Cemetery uh, in the family mausoleum. And he's buried in a lead lined coffin. And uh, like I said, uh, Bailey was never charged with his death. And, you know, I mean, this made national news. I mean, the, Byers's death was, was covered across the country, across the globe. It was just flabbergasting that, you know, this, this, this former peak athlete died of this just horrific, horrific, um, disease or, you know, this, this horrific death. And, um, what was fascinating at the end of it is 30 years later, there was a study being done, I believe by, by a professor at Harvard university, on the effects of radium in, in, in the body. And, you know, and this is after, you know, we have the, you know, the atomic bombs are dropped and we, we're starting to understand, you know, the effects of radiation and radium and, and things like that. And when his, when his body was exhumed in this, in, for this study, Byers's body was still as radioactive as the day he was put in the mausoleum in the 1960s in the night, 30 years later in the sixties. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and that's and that's really it. He he dies. Uh, he was a millionaire when he died. Um, his estate was estimated at a million dollars between his homes and in Pittsburgh and Southampton and um, the art that'd collection. Be, that, that'd know. be millions of dollars in the 1930s. Yes, that'd be fair. Okay, so it's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there there was no exact amount given, so it was hard to f- equate that today. But it was uh, the newspaper stated that he was estimated uh, his estate to be about a million dollars at the time of his death, and that all got, went to his brother JF and his sister Maud, uh, who survived him. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that you know Byers, you know, was a former U.S. amateur champion. You know, he has this tragic end and, you know, and most people don't even, don't even know either story. Yeah. then most don't know his name or, or if they do some know, oh yeah, well he, he won the US Amateur, you know, kind of thing or, or others are like, yeah, he's the guy that died of radium poisoning, you know, and they, and they don't kind of put two and two together that it was the same guy. Um, well, let's do this. Let's, let's leave this on a good note. Cause Evan Byers doesn't deserve to go out by the way he died. So how should people remember Evan Byers? How do you remember him when you when you think of him? I mean, put it on your golf history hat or your Allegheny Country Club hat. How do you look back at the life and times of Evan Byers? It's hard to overlook the end. 
it, truly. I mean, it is. It, no, it's a horrific. It's, end. it's it's incredibly hard to overlook how it all ends. If I was going to look back at him as the golfer, I think he's definitely one of the underrated players of his generation. Um, you know, the fact that he won an amateur, finished runner up in two others, had the record that he did in Western Pennsylvania. I, I think um, I think he's sort of unlucky in that I would kind of almost equate him to Ernie Els. He was um, a great player of his generation that was overshadowed by one player locally and one player nationally. Um, you know, whereas you know Ernie was overshadowed by Tiger and Phil. You know, in his prime, I would say that Byers was overshadowed by you know WC phones here locally. And then the likes of uh, Walter Travis and Jerry Travers nationally, um, but he certainly had the game to contend. I mean, you know, again, to, to finish as a finalist in three U.S. amateurs is no easy feat. Very few people have done that. Um, to win six West Penn amateurs uh, is no easy feat in and of itself. You know, and to win any golf tournament is is, is incredibly hard. To win you know, six or eight or, you know, however many you want to count by the time you get done between amateurs and opens and things like that, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, if I had to compare him to anybody, I would say he is the Ernie Els of his time where he won, but he's definitely overshadowed by, um, other names of the, of the time. Yeah. Or you could think out of, of him as the, uh, the millionaire playboy golfer, yep. right? The amateur, yep. <laughs> he had yep. that, I mean, you know, he had that panache, yeah, he did. I love yes, that. he absolutely did. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Golf History. We'll have to do it again on phones because he's an, another story of how he helped cement golf here in the United States, obviously in Pennsylvania, but his contributions are vast and mostly um, not focused on. Yeah, I, the phones is, you know, I, I think Henry gets uh, probably more accolades because he's noted as the the architect of oakmont um wc probably plays a more important role mm -hmm. uh overall so yeah I, I think uh we'll definitely have to sit down and, and have a conversation about him one of these days because uh there's a lot of there's a lot to wc and a lot to the family and really a lot to you know what drives the phones is out of oakmont really at the end of the day too yeah, absolutely um, you know so um, which a lot of people don't understand that story at all. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'd love to come back sometime and talk WC. Definitely going to um, do it. I still have yeah. to do the history of Oakmont, so you're going to have to yeah. help me with that one too. Sure. Oh, I think yeah, we should, I'd like to get a panel of you guys together. I know we tried to do this before, but I think it was a little close to the U.S. Amateur to pull it off. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Dave. Anytime. Golf's Grand History is filled with triumph and tragedy, and this unfortunate story gives us both. Eben Byer's life had historic highs and one of the most horrific endings I have ever heard of. It's a story that isn't well known, but a story I thought you had to hear. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.